In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. Together, we will be taking on the most corrupt forces and entrenched interests imaginable. Our country is in a horrible state. We're in grave trouble. This is not a task for a politician or a conventional candidate. This is a task for a great movement. That was Donald Trump Tuesday night, announcing to no one's surprise he will once again run for president. By Trumpian standards, he seemed subdued as he described America's descent into war, crime, and economic catastrophe ever since he left the White House 22 long months ago and Joe Biden took office. And yet the timing seemed curious and to many Republicans infuriating. The party had just suffered unexpected setbacks in the midterms, once again losing the Senate, and it seems just barely taking back the House as Trump-endorsed candidates fell by the wayside one by one. And if that wasn't enough, GOP leaders were still determined to eke out a win in a Georgia runoff and are desperate to have him stay out of the headlines. How much of a threat to Republican stability and future success is Trump's candidacy? We'll talk to Yahoo News correspondent Alex Nazarian, who was at Mar-a-Lago for the big announcement, and then we'll check in with Molly Jong Fast, a popular liberal podcaster and social media influencer, about what she makes of Trump's candidacy and the unexpected midterm results on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. And we are joined by our Yahoo News colleague, Alex Nazarian. Alex, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thank you, Mike, Danny. Look, it's kind of mind boggling that um, we're still listening to Donald Trump dominate the airwaves as he did last night. You were down there at Mar-a-Lago for this big announcement. What was the vibe? What was it like? Who was there? Give us uh, your take. Well, I'll say the vibe was very similar to maybe an early Trump rally from 2015, which, which is to say not quite the raucous rallies of like the general election when they were cheering on protesters being taken away and well, when Trump really got revved up. This, this, it had a more tenuous quality than that, absolutely. At the same time, I sort of don't think that, you know, the notion that it was a low energy speech, um, I, didn't, I didn't see it. Let me push you on that a little bit. For, for one thing, He's not unbiased about this, but Jeb Bush tweeted that it was low, low energy uh, Trump. Um, <laughs> but, you know, to me, it seemed subdued mm-hmm. um, compared to a lot of other recent speeches he's given. Also, and this is all relative because we are talking about Donald Trump, but he did not kind of go off the rails in the way that we've become accustomed to. Absolutely. He did not really rant about how the election was stolen. He did raise questions about elections in America, but he didn't actually use the words, you know, the the election was stolen. It wasn't crazy Trump. 
It was clearly a, a different kind of Trump who, who for whatever reason, was trying to be more kind of policy-driven. So why? Why did we see that Trump? Well, Danny, I think that there are a couple of reasons. First of all, we saw that candidates who espoused his big lie did incredibly poorly in the midterms. And although he claimed that his midterm record was something like 230 wins and 20 losses. I'm not entirely sure where that figure comes from, and it might be somewhat exaggerated. I don't know if you know this, but Trump has a tendency to exaggerate (laughs) and say things that are not exactly true. Um, Can you back that up, Alex? (laughs) You know, someone should start a a website that fact checks Donald Trump. Um, (laughs) So the the most public race- It's called the New York Times and the Washington Post, but go ahead. (laughs) No comment. So, right. So you, you have Don Balduck losing in New Hampshire. You have Kerry Lake losing in Arizona. The Republicans are sick and tired of, you know, being sick and tired of Donald Trump. And he has to show them that uh, their criticisms from the last week, which have really reached an incredibly high pitch, they, they, he, he, has to, he has to have them step back from the ledge. Saying, hey, look, I can deliver a policy speech. Yes, that policy included executing drug dealers, <laughs> um, planting a, ma- a flag on Mars, you know, restoring funding to the police, which is only a, a ridiculous proposal because police, de- most police departments are, or many police departments are better funded today than they were uh, two years ago. So there were, there were, but yes, judging this relative to other Trump speeches. This was a Cato Institute white paper for a heritage, you know, heritage foundation white paper. The other uh, next, Hi. you know, they're, they're basically like, uh, what's the what's next for Donald Trump? What's his next step after this? Is he going to go on the road with a bunch of rallies or is it going to be a bunch of uh, phone calls to donors begging them to come back? Or court appearances or court appearances. Well, there's that, of course. Right. He does have the legal. He has the legal challenges and the legal bills that come with those challenges. And of course, the the Republican Party is no longer as far as I know, is no longer paying those. But his leadership pack is they're continually pouring. Once he announces the RNC, they can't give him any money for for any of that. Yeah. The RNC can't. But the donors to make America great again, can and will. So I'm not, I don't want to BS you guys. I don't entirely know what is next because I was so focused on what was happening last night and what it meant. And I'm still in that stage, but I don't think the donors are going to be pacified by a single halfway normal speech. I think they're going to need to see a lot more, especially with, um, you know, we talk a lot about DeSantis courting the donors, but so is Tim Scott, so is Glenn Youngkin, so is Nikki Haley, right? So is, you know, Josh Hawley. And Santorum, of course. <laughs> so there's there's really? an, intense com- <laughs> an intense competition right now. Right now, it might make more sense for Trump to do rallies and show Republicans that that magic, as it were, of the 2015-2016 campaign is still there and it won't be kind of long, you know, conspiratorial 
speeches about uh, rants, really, uh, about, uh, you know, election machines in Germany or their servers in Germany, because that, that's you know, just but, not. But right. Alex, I'm wondering who's the target audience for this, you know, sober Cato Institute policy paper type speech. It seems to me what his base wants to hear is the crazy stuff and the wild conspiracy theories. I don't know who in the Republican Party of any influence um, or cash to give for donations is going to be um, snookered by a sort of, you know, more modestly controlled Donald Trump trying to talk policy. So I I think and I, I could be wrong on this. I think on, you know, in terms of voicing a populist anti-establishment message, he still has the most credibility in the mainstream Republican Party, which is, of course, ridiculous because he's a former president who is immensely wealthy. And if that were ridiculous in 2015, it's even more so today, right, where he, you know, where he, uh, you know, still benefits from having served in the White House. He still he has the institutional you know, the institutional memory of two presidential runs is still there, even if it's probably worn away quite a bit by this point, you know, with defections to other potential candidates. I don't know. Do you think he learned anything about by being in the White House, you know, our twice impeached president? Is he more going to be more respective of, of norms? You know, that's not, that's not quite what I mean. It's just that there are enough people whom he has retained. And you saw some of them last night. Like who? I'll just, you know, uh, for example, Matt Whitaker, uh, just someone I stopped to chat with, the former, uh, I think, acting, acting attorney, attorney general. general yeah. act, right. The toilet salesman, right? Yes, the, <laughs> yes, the toilet salesman from Iowa. Yeah. And I, I'm just using him as an, or, or Devin Nunes, the, who's, who's now running his social media site. The man who sued a, a cow account on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, Devin Nunes Cow, right? That's one of the great legal battles of the 21st century. I saw in the press coverage, Cash Patel was there. Cash, Cash, Cash Patel, was Patel there. a crucial witness in the Mar-a-Lago uh, investigation, who was just given immunity by the Justice Department to testify before the grand jury. Did you ask him what he told the grand jury? I did not get a chance to talk to Cash, <laughs> but I can report he has a very large watch, and he looked quite pleased with himself perhaps because he has immunity i would that's sort of that was my speculation right so what i'm saying is there are it's not as if the entire republican establishment has just peeled wait is that is that the republic i'm sorry is uh, cash patel and matt whitaker that's the republican establishment doesn't doesn't he he needs the real establishment he got some of that yesterday i mean you got lindsey graham right uh huckabee he can't afford, can he, to have the real establishment, to the extent that it still exists, abandon him. But Danny, to what extent do you think it exists? I mean, who is in that real Well, I mean, you, there, there are gradations. I mean, there's Cash Patel and then there's Kevin McCarthy, right? So he still needs, doesn't he, the yeah. sort of uh, the Kevin McCarthy's of the world to be on his side? Right. And I think one of his three campaign managers is a former McCarthy aide. I know you're just using him as an example. But look, I, you know, I certainly don't want to be endorsing Trump's run here, but I but I but I see him still voicing that he the most he still remains the most convincing messenger for the populist. Just, you know, drain the swamp message that the Republicans have. They may not be the message they want. They may want just a, a culture warrior like DeSantis or maybe an elder sort of statesman like uh, Pompeo 
or Pence, really. But there is still, I think, a, a there are, we know there are, by the polling, millions and millions of people who see Trump as kind of this renegade truth teller. And, you know, Mike, to your earlier point, he still said a lot of pretty wild stuff. Right. I mean, like really wild. I mean, you know, just and it's not, not I don't mean just conspiratorial, just, you know, just blasting away at Biden and these really like dark apocalyptic terms talking about how, you know, these liberals want uh, to save the oceans. But, you know, what would really destroy the oceans is nuclear war. And, you know, boy, what a shame that I had a good relationship with Kim Jong Un. Just stuff, stuff you know, there was plenty. We're so conditioned. We, we've been so conditioned since January 6th to expect just rock bottom crazy from Trump that if it's just a little bit less crazy, we think, well, this is, you know, he's a statesman. <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, FDR giving for freedom speech. It's like, come on. It's he just I, and I think there are actually Republicans who will like that. And as I said before, I thought some of the kind of uh, this was adult speeches was maybe a little bit overstated. I, I more or less felt to me like some of the earlier campaign speeches I saw from him before. And I certainly think it was better than some of the 2020 stuff. We will see. Uh, you know, it's a long campaign to go, a lot of twists and turns. And uh, don't forget those court appearances, because um, I think uh, prosecutors at the Justice Department in Fulton County and, um, you know, God knows where else. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yep. And Manhattan. Manhattan. And in Manhattan are all going to be, uh, you know, sharpening their knives for some pretty big cases coming up. And it's going to be interesting to see how Trump navigates getting indicted, which we all expect him to be somewhere in the next few months and still running for president. But look, anyway, I think it helps him, frankly. Right. I mean, I do. think I do. I think it helps him because it, you know, and he said yesterday, I am a victim which is a remarkable thing to say from the gilded interior of Mar-a-Lago. But, but that, that, cult of victimhood, that, that cult of victimhood is just immensely powerful. And of course, a, a number of his aides were saying on background that part of the calculus for this decision to announce that he's running for president is to make it harder for the Justice Department uh, to come after him with criminal charges because he can then make the case that it is a bald political effort to go after him, you know, since he's running against uh, presumably um, their boss, uh, President Biden. Yep. Does anyone really think that anyone at DOJ is kind of uh, shredding their files on on Trump right now because of this? Uh, I don't no, but they do face a pretty difficult or somewhat difficult decision to make on whether there needs to be a special counsel. If Trump is number one in the polls for a Republican primary, it, it, right now he's the only candidate, but you know, down the road in a few months, if he's still dominating, I think it makes, it's not going to stop DOJ, but it does make that decision on a special counsel all the more difficult, I think. But anyway, Alex, this is a subject we will return to on Skullduggery. Alex, I know you got to go. So no, I, I was thinking Yahoo should probably an expense a condo in um in uh, Palm Beach. I, I I'll send the details tomorrow. Just you know because okay. we're down there so much. Palm Palm Beach. Fulton County, yeah. where else? Yeah. We need a nice yeah. place near the Manhattan courthouse. Yeah, it was a nice, really nice place on the Upper East Side. If we could just okay, thanks guys. All right, All right. see you, Alex. Thanks, Thank Alex. You. All right, Alex is gone, but I think we do want to have a few more beats on this special counsel issue. Danny, go ahead. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was just going to say that at the, the end of the day, in some ways, the question of whether the Justice Department or Merrick Garland appoints a special counsel or not is not all that material. I mean, it, it might make a difference. Oh, a I little disagree bit of a difference with you on ter- that. Yeah. And, well, it might. Well, let me finish. Let, let me let me just make my case before you disagree Rudely with me. Okay? <laughs> the point is, is just that, it, yes, it'll make some difference in terms of optics in the short term, but in the long term... It is Merrick Garland who will make the prosecution decision. It is not, it won't be the special counsel. So, uh, you know, as soon as, if he were to do this, as soon as that happens, you know, Trump and everybody supporting Trump and a lot of Republicans and independents out there will say, this isn't going to make any difference at all. You still have the same conflict of interest. Merrick Garland makes the final judgment, um, and that's, ultimately what the problem is well i don't think it's quite that uh, i don't think it's quite that simple first of all it does make a difference if you appoint a special counsel because first of all you have to find one and finding an eminent lawyer who has not opined somewhere over the last six years about donald trump's conduct uh, i think could be a difficult search to find somebody who would qualify but the way these things have worked in the past is the special counsel takes over and then there's a question to the justice department lawyers stay who've been working on the case from the national security division in the case of mar-a-lago or criminal division in the case of january 6th do they stay on the job or does the special counsel want to bring in his own team that's what Mueller did when he became special counsel he hired his own people all that takes time that delays the investigation um, which is a big reason not to do it and on your point about Garland Mike, we agree. the final, we agree. <laughs> we agree. Wait a second. Twitter, did you hear that? <laughs> Victoria is agreeing with me. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, to your point about Garland's going to make the final decision, sure. But I'm not aware of an attorney general overruling a recommendation from a special counsel. Are you aware of an attorney general um, having to make a decision about prosecuting an ex-president who's also running for president? No, no. But I think it would be pretty hard for Garland to pull the trigger on a Trump indictment if a special counsel investigates and decides uh, the uh, the evidence isn't there. Um, well, not that that's going to happen, but I just think it would make it a lot harder for Merrick Garland to do. I think, Mike, what you pointed out is exactly why there isn't going to be a special prosecutor. And that is time is of the essence. Everyone knows that if Merrick Garland appoints a special prosecutor, it's going to slow everything down very, very significantly. Meanwhile, the benefit from appointing a special prosecutor is absolutely de minimis. Does anyone think that if Merrick Garland appoints a, a special prosecutor that Trump isn't going to cry foul and claim to be a victim, that any one in the Republican Party is going to accept what the special prosecutor decides or doesn't decide, and that Merrick Garland isn't going to be, and Joe Biden aren't ultimately going to be tagged for the ultimate decision. The benefit of a special prosecutor is next to incrementally next to nothing. This is amazing, Victoria. You've managed to agree with both of us. Well, <laughs> Even though I'm Mike gonna, and I I'm don't gonna, agree with I'm each a, other. Uh, uh, dissent here it's a like bit. Get the, three, right, get, right, get the I, three of us on this and you get six opinions. So, I, I, you know. I, I, <laughs> I take your point. I take your point that Trump is going to complain regardless. But that said, I mean, 
if if you don't appoint a special counsel in this case, and I'm just going to argue the other side here for a moment, when do you appoint a special counsel? You've got a guy who's running for president against the incumbent president who appointed the uh, the attorney general, right? It's a Democratic administration. He's a Republican. He's running to oversee to, to, to kick them out of office. If that's not a uh, and and the standard is a perception of a conflict, a perception that justice might be compromised. If it's if it doesn't apply in this case, you know, I think you've pretty much gutted this whole special counsel provision. All right, in Justice I, here, Department like, guidelines. I, gotta, I have a I have a suggestion. I think yeah. what we need to do. Yeah, and we'll end here. Is I think we need to dig out our old stories, our old coverage of the Inslaw investigation, <laughs> which our skullduggery nobody fans knows what that ought is. Ought Google yeah. Inslaw? That's okay. when Bill Barr, who was the Attorney General at the time, the first time he was Attorney General, made the decision to appoint a special counsel. Right. Uh, and back then, anyway, as I recall, it was one of his biggest regrets as as Attorney General. But but Google Inslaw, Bill Barr. Nicholas Bua, B-U-A. By the way, go down who, that did not, hole. who did not bring any criminal charges in that case, which was which was an Ur conspiracy theory, by the way, which we don't have time or inclination to, we don't want to talk about, about the to discuss. All right, enough. <laughs> we have a good guest coming, so <laughs> let's get to it. We now have with us the popular fellow podcaster, Molly Jong Fast, who um, we've been trying to get on, or I wanted to get on for some time. Then she gets this huge profile in the New York Times business section, by the way, which really surprised me. Business section. You got to have to explain that. Anyway, welcome to Skullduggery, Molly. Thank you for having me. A lot that we all want to talk to you about, but let's just start out with the obvious. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, liberals such as yourself were fretting. Democracy is on the verge of dying. The Republicans are going to sweep the election. That doesn't happen, although it looks like they are still going to just barely, but have control of the House. How are you feeling about the election results? I mean, I think we're all really relieved. Liberal, cons- you know, never Trump conservative, the two, you know, n- less politically inclined. I think all of us are quite relieved that, you know, I mean, I thought, I mean, the American people are not as, I actually wrote about this for Bounty Fair. I, the American people are not as, cynical as the rest of us, right? Like we all thought, many of us in the media thought that the American people would vote on inflation and gas prices and not really care about the larger problems, you know, that they would say, well, we think, you know, Republicans, it's that sort of old adage of Republicans win when, you know, the economy is, uh, you know, when people are voting on the economy. And so a lot of us were worried and there were all these election deniers that Trump had chosen to run with the hopes that they would then install him in 24. And they were running in all these swing states and they would say crazier and crazier things, right? They would say things like, 
you know, if Trump, you know, we're going to make sure that the state stays Republican. Right. I mean, stuff that just was not Democratic. And almost all of those people, the swing state ones lost. And so I myself am very relieved. So, Molly, let me follow up on that, because the the disconnect between the media and the kind of chattering classes and voters, because you you, you said you, you wrote about that. In your Vanity Fair column, which you you said the media industrial complex got it wrong. And I'm just going to quote from it because you wrote, but much of what happened looks more like groupthink that happens when you're trying to make a supposition on too little information. Journalists, myself included, need to spend more time reflecting on the country we're writing about and less time trying to get the country we're writing about to conform to what we wish it to be. I think we all agree with that. But let me ask you about, you know, your meteoric rise at the, is, has a lot to do with uh, you're you know, obviously a brilliant commentator and writer, but also very active on Twitter. You've got a million followers. And we did a podcast a couple of a weeks ago. A million followers? God. A million? Wow. Well, that's what I read in the New York Times. <laughs> yeah. So please tweet this podcast when it comes <laughs> out, Molly. <laughs> but um, but Twitter, as we, we talked about this when we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago about Elon Musk is where that groupthink gets shaped to a large extent. So how do you kind of reconcile, you know, sort of your life on Twitter and how important Twitter is uh, to what you do and the need to kind of get out there and listen to Americans and understand them better than we do? I mean, I'm not not just you. No, how no, should we all I, do that? I, no, I listen, it's a good question and I'm glad you asked it. I, I actually it's funny because when I was writing that, I was thinking about this. I actually don't think I think there's a lot of media group think. I'm not sure that Twitter is the place that I don't know if Twitter is the place that it happens or where it happens. But like I was thinking about it because during the run up to the elections, I would you know, I do. I have a podcast and I do all these interviews and I would and I, you know, I would say, I would say if the Democrats lose the House and then I would say when the Democrats lose the House. And I thought and I would think to myself, well, you know, they might not lose the House. And then I would think, oh, you don't want to sound like an idiot. Everyone's going to think you're an idiot if you say that. Everybody knows they're going to lose the House. The mass on the House seats is such that they're going to lose. Right. Because the redistricting and because, you know, there are da 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 number of safe Republicans. So I would think to myself, but I don't want to sound like an idiot. So. I would say, like, I don't know that that came from Twitter as much as it like it came from reading a lot of pieces. What does come from Twitter, which I do think is important and relevant, is that there is like people are are much meaner and angrier on Twitter than they are in real life. So like all of these I've encountered so many, you know, users who would say, you know, making jokes about Paul Pelosi. Right. He's 82 years old. He got. I mean, the family was like, he's sure to recover. I'm like, my parents are in their 80s. If somebody hurt them, I'm not sure they'd be sure to recover. I mean, that's like a huge, I mean, these are fragile. When you're in your 80s, you're fragile. And, you know, people making fun of him, like that kind of thing, like voters said no, right? The American people do not like that. They think it's disgusting. Whereas like that kind of thing happens on Twitter. So I would say that I think there's a coarsening effect that's really bad, And that journalists are subjected to that all of us are subjected to online. But I'm not convinced. I'm not exactly sure where this group thing comes from, but I think some of it. And I actually think if we're going to talk about my meteoric rise, whatever that means, um, Mm -hmm. is that one of the things 
that people liked about me was that I wasn't trying to two sides things, right? Like I wasn't saying, I mean, again, I'm not a straight journalist. I'm on the opinion side, so it's very different. And I'm not, you know, there are a lot of really talented reporters who need to, who have this very tough job of, you know, going to the diners and hearing this stuff, but also not, you know, doing PR for those people. And and I don't, you know, I'm glad I'm not one of them. So I would say, look, media is very, it's a very tough time right now, but it is also sort of fascinating that these voters just did what they wanted to do, right? They didn't, they didn't listen to the media and they didn't tell the media, which I think is completely fascinating. So just to explain just one last, I just want to follow up on the two sidesing piece of it, just to be right. clear, to make sure I understand it, because I think what you're saying is there is among kind of mainstream media types who are on Twitter and on social media a lot, there is this kind of kind of almost compulsion or need to have the contrarian take or... Well, I think that's a separate issue. And that is like punditry brainworms, right? Which is like, we know you, you know, I mean, that is some, that's something totally different that happens in Ed Pages. And I think... You know, where they say, you know, I'm a fifth wave feminist, but I just love to cook for my husband and have lots of children, you know, and I be- but I believe I don't belong in the workforce. You know, I mean, those pieces like, you know, those are like pieces that people like to get mad at. Editors love I think a lot of editors like them because they are controversial. I'm not sure what they do for the greater good or for the for anyone. But if I really believe something like that, I might write it. I mean, I just don't have brainworms. But I, the thing that I was going to say, or at least I don't have brainworms about that. I may have brainworms about other things. But um, the thing I would say is like it's much it's much harder as a straight journalist to co- you know when you're covering people. Like for example, Trump obviously started insurrection three times, impeached, pathological liar. So with that, you just couch it in that, you know. But like when you're covering someone where it's a little more complicated, right? Like where it's, you know, someone who might not be a good faith actor, but maybe, I mean, it's very hard to write straight news. So I'm really curious about the the point that you were making in your column, which is that the kind of the media industrial political complex doesn't understand voters or kind of follows a lot of groupthink, which I think maybe we can accept to a certain degree as a given right now. You know, uh, uh, 2016 uh, shocked and appalled the groupthink who all thought Hillary was the Mm -hmm. inevitable victor. 2020 did the same when everyone thought that Biden was the inevitable victor. Now we've got 2022 is the latest example. So where does the kind of media commentary voter analysis kind of media go now? I mean, obviously, we right. can all go to a bunch of diners and interview, <laughs> uh, and and interview a bunch of people. The Democrats of the diners. Yeah, exactly. So, so where, but but where does the media go in this space? Well, so I think what my my theory of the case for this was that we were go- working off bad polls, right? I mean, again, you'll have pollsters who will say we weren't that wrong. And there were some that weren't that wrong, but there were these junky Trafalgar Trafalgar polls that messed up the polling averages. So we're working on these polls, you know, where I mean, you know, I knew someone who Mitch McConnell told not Mitch McConnell, one of those other Republicans in leadership told a friend of mine that Washington state Senate seat was in play. Right. I mean, they just went. 
you know, I'm sure that those guys wish that the Washington Senate seat was in play, but it was Yes, but that got into the bloodstream and we were all talking about it. Right. Sometimes I've heard this term, the vibes. People talk now about right. the vibes because we're all talking about this, but we're not really talking to the people who matter or we're not really digging into the data in ways that maybe we should should be. Yes, polls are sometimes wrong, but if you really looked at the data this time around, there was actually no chance that there was going to be a red tsunami or a major red wave, according <laughs> to the polls. That just became right. something that everyone started to talk about. Well, I mean, I also think you did have these partisan pollsters who did mess up the averages. So, I mean, and you saw, and there were a couple of them, and you didn't have Democrat. I mean, Democratic pollsters. But ultimately, we're not. We need a new way to poll. I mean, that's part of what's happened is we have all this money that's not going into it. But I also think the one thing I want to just go back to is with that question is I also think that the lion's share of people in the media are still. And again, I think this is an important point. There are a lot of white men who, and no offense to present company, you know, you guys are obviously great, but, you know, I mean, the people I wrote about in that piece, white men with a slight conservative or maybe nonpartisan, you know, who are cynical and have lived through many election cycles. I mean, I'm just saying, like, I think there is, you know, for me, when I found out that Roe was gone, I couldn't believe it. Okay, I mean, I couldn't fucking believe it. I would excuse my French, but I mean, I was like, wait, what? like I had known about SB8. I had seen it had passed. It had been a year of where Texas had overturned Roe. But when they actually did it, I couldn't believe it. Like I could not like I was so shocked. I, I didn't even I, I never thought in my lifetime that that would happen. So I do think like. If you're a man and have bodily autonomy, no offense, guys, like you don't necessarily know what that feels like to know that your daughter, you know, that that. And, and by the way, they and and also like to see conservatives like Mike Pence was like, and we're going to go for a nationwide ban right after that. OK, so l let me ask you just a, a follow up question, which is that a lot of people, like you said, are breathing a sigh of relief as a result of last week's election results. They feel like uh, kind of the American public showed a, a level of kind of common sense devotion to democracy and, and, and a kind of a rejection of some of the most kind of radical bonkers ideas that were out there. But do you think that's a kind of a, a durable or a, a persistent change in the American electorate? Or is the Republican Party going to begin to kind of pivot back to a kind of a more sensible approach to American voters. I mean, I have no I, I mean, if I were a Republican, I would pivot back to not being insane because I would want to win general elections. There is no evidence to support that that's their plan. I mean, you see Fox News is saying like these women, you know, is saying we need to get I mean, I don't know if you saw Jesse Waters saying we need to get these women married so they'll vote Republican. I, mean, I did actually see that. Right. Like, yeah. it doesn't seem like a winnable, you know, they're talking about changing voters, making it harder to vote. I mean, I think it might be worth trying to appeal to people, but that seems to be, you know, not what they're doing. I do think the one data point is that there 
you're seeing, I mean, you saw what last night's teleprompter Trump presentation, he's trying to look less crazy and look less racist. And his people, like his son, you know, Pizza Jack, those people, his right wing media kill team online is trying to look less you know, volatile and racist. And so, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. The whole appeal of those guys was that they were volatile. I mean, not to me, but to that fringy base was that they were volatile and insane and racist. So can you be that without being the things that people liked you for? I don't know. So let's talk about your meteoric rise oh, Jesus. Um, as chronicled by the New York Times. First of all, we should point out you have a fascinating pedigree. Your grandfather was the novelist Howard Fast, extremely popular, extremely left wing. I believe he was a communist. Am yeah, he won the Stalin Peace Prize. Stalin Peace Prize. He also wrote, among his many novels, Spartacus, which was made into one of my favorite movies of all time uh, with Kirk Douglas. Your mother is Erica Jong, a well-known writer herself. Right. You grew up in this interesting background in New York City, but you had quite a few crises in your life, drugs and rehab, and uh, you wrote a few novels. But I've, I think it's fair to say that none of us on this podcast would have heard of you like four or five years ago. And now you are, you know, profiled in the New York Times, a million Twitter followers. You have this um, and you get these great guests on your podcast, which I want to ask you about. So how do you explain how you became or make it broader? One becomes a media influencer social media influencer such as yourself? Well, I mean, I would say, you know, and I I love my grandfather who was blacklisted. He said one of the great things I've ever, one of the greatest things he wrote about his FBI file was that he said that his FBI file, none of the terrible things he had done as a man, because he was a very flawed man, got into his FBI file. That his FBI file was, you know, him and W.E. Du Bois. It was him and, uh, you know, the Peak School riots, he was jailed for refusing to name names. I mean, I have a lot of respect for the man. And my mother also did a lot of cool stuff. I'm, I, I mean, I would say, like, I had written a lot of books. So I had published three novels. I had been, you know, I'd written for, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to sound defensive. And I also don't want, I'm really honored to be profiled in the New York Times. I know what a big deal that is. And I feel very lucky to have had that, especially, you know, I'm 44. But, you know, I toiled away for a long time, as a lot of us do in this business. And then I think that what happened to me was I started, you know, I just went, I just did what, you know, I wrote for The Daily Beast. I wrote for The Bulwark. I wrote for Glamour. I went to Vogue. And then I got to The Atlantic. And then, you know, I sort of just kept, you know, I wrote twice a week at these kind or twice, sometimes three, sometimes four times a week. I mean, I worked incredibly hard and wrote a lot of pieces. I mean, that's not to say that I didn't also have huge advantages. I had grown up with people. I knew people. I had, you know, I didn't have, I mean, I had so many huge advantages. I mean, I want to be clear about that and not be a hypocrite because that's really gross. But yeah, so I mean, I it's a heartwarming story of someone with enormous advantages, uh, but I did work hard. So, I mean, I think like, 
you know, but it's not, I don't think this is like. Yeah, but look, Molly, a lot of us work hard, um, but don't get huge profiles in the New York Times. And also on your podcast, I mean, I was, you know, pretty astounded among your guests, the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, Ron Klain, White House chief of staff, Chuck Schumer, the Senate majority leader, John Fetterman, the new senator from Pennsylvania. Now, we've tried to get some of these people. I will uh, point out. I think it was. And we strike out. out, Let me just point out, just in defense of skullduggery, because I think you have been trying to get AOC. AOC is really hard. Yeah, and you and have not we, we got AOC, and we did get yeah, her. Yeah, so we did get her. Yeah, <laughs> and right. by the way, not only do I have I not gotten her, but her office, I will write to them, and they will be like, no. Like, they don't even not respond, like, which is what normal offices do. They'll be like, no, you're not. I was like, I had Okay, how did you get Klein, Harris, and Schumer? Part of it is that, I mean, I do credit freelance writing to this, which is I'm used to such a high level of rejection. Like, I'm not a person who's like, oh, you're right, I'm terrible. I'm a person who's like, I'll circle back with you tomorrow. You know, and like, I, and also I do all my own booking, so, like, you don't get an email from some person you don't know. You get an email from me, and then you get another email from me, and then you get another, and then you, you pester get them. You pester yeah, them, which yeah. is what you got to do. Which is what you got to do. And also, I'm, you know, and I'm also, I would say that I, you, and you know, it's me. So I'm putting the arm on you. So, but yes. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I don't know that I, I mean, I think like, you know, I think that's the secret. And I also will say one thing that I think makes it easier, which is that I do, you know, our, my interviews are 15 to 20 minutes. So like, how can you say no to 15 minutes? And like with Bernie, I was like, just do it on the phone. We'll do 15 minutes on the phone, you know? So, I mean, I don't know that it the same thing would work if I was like, I need an hour. You know what I mean? Because like, it's easy to say no to an hour, you know? And the other thing is we're very flexible with that. But I should also point out, you are a champion networker, if that is, um, uh, if you'd accept that. You know, I met you at uh, one of these Jonathan Allen parties in Washington. You're uh, you're there with George Conway, uh, somebody who you've hooked up with on Twitter. You brought along Lisa Page, the former FBI agent who was um, involved in quite a bit of controversy during the Russia stuff. I mean- you seem to have a knack for networking with others who are influencers. I mean, I'm interested in what people are doing. Like, I'm interested in them. I'm interested in them. I like to talk to people. Like, I'm interested. I mean, I don't know. I'm also, like, not, I don't know. You know, I'm, like, I came from, like, an insane family, where everyone was insane. So I have like a very, I can like deal with people if that makes any sense. So I don't, you know, I, I'm comfortable. But does with that anyone. help you deal with Trump people? And do you deal at all with Trump people? So, I mean, I've known some Trump people. The problem with Trump people is that um, they tend to be really not governed by the rules the rest of us are. So like, do you want your text messages? you know, published in the, I mean, the New York, you know, in a right wing newspaper. Like, I mean, I don't, a lot of those guys, like they behave in ways that are not, you know, like I am very careful about like my world. And so that scares me. Well, they they view you as the enemy. 
Well, that certainly, but also they, I mean, they just, you can't trust. I mean, as we know from many, many news stories where people from Trump world will say one thing and then do another or lie to journalists or, I mean, they're just not, they're not bound by the stuff the rest of us are. So it makes them dangerous people to be friends with. So for Molly, any number let me, of reasons. Let me ask you, in a way, the flip side of the media, politico, industrial complex getting it wrong is that Joe Biden and the White House got it right, you know, on on abortion, on democracy. Joe Biden was uh, criticized and, and almost, you know, kind of a contempt for mm-hmm. like that democracy speech he gave uh, where, he, you know, and talking about ultra MAGA, that is just, a you know, another in a series of bad takes by yeah. uh, by Joe Biden. So where do you think this leaves this White House and Joe Biden and his political future. I think you just had Ron Klain as chief of staff uh, on your podcast. You know, he's uh, what his birthday is in a few days. He's going to be 80 yeah. years old. And obviously yeah. there are questions about an octogenarian, you know, who's, you know, if he if he were reelected, he would end his second term at age 86. Um, Let me just jump in here for the, a second, Molly. You just said when you're, you're talking in about your the frailty 80s, of your, of, you're of your, fragile. Of your own parents. Right, so right, do, right, I, right. I think where Danny's going is, do we need a fragile octogenarian running for president? Exactly. Again? See, I mean, that is the lesson. And by the way, I want to point out in that piece, I also called myself out, right? Because I said that I had written this piece for the Washington Post where I had said that Biden needed to drop out after he lost those first two primaries and he went on to just sweep the field. And I was completely wrong. So I would not count Joe Biden out. I mean, I feel like if there's one lesson, like I think about those two speeches and the first one in September, the people media uh, in the media, including myself, were like, uh, okay. And, you know, and they were all on the right. They were cropping these photos of him looking terrifying, saying he was, you know, that he was like Hitler because of the way the red light had. I mean, they were really, you know, how dare you, Kevin McCarthy? How dare you call us autocrats? How dare you call us fascists? I mean, you have never the, the right is so good at being offended. Right. They were so offended. How dare he. Right. And then uh, the second speech you saw, I mean, I remember some straight news reporter was like, Biden's going to give another speech, right? I mean, it was two speeches from September to the midterms. And so it was like another speech. And then he gives this speech at the train union station. And people are saying, oh, he doesn't even have the seal on the lectern. I mean, really like the dumbest comments. And by the way, he was totally right. And it was totally and and what he said. And I actually went back and looked at the uh, text from those speeches and it was really good. Like it was good writing. And as someone who's written about like Trump speeches before and you go back and you're like, how is this even English? You go back and you look at this uh, Biden speech and you think this is right. And it's pretty good. And like, you know, and we're all obsessed with like the lighting or whatever, or why there's another one. So I refused. I will not count this guy out. I, I think he's like too, you know, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in two years. That's like 700 plus days away. I mean, hopefully we'll all be alive by then. Or who knows? But I wouldn't count him out, man. 
Okay, so let's let's uh, pivot to another one of your guests yeah. though, on your on your podcast, and that is uh, Joe Biden's vice president, who yeah. uh, has, is getting an awful lot of bad press. Um, and I'm just sort of curious: do, do you think she deserves it? Do you think he ought to keep her to be his vice president? And is that groupthink also? I think it's groupthink. I'm telling you. Okay, so I have this is something I'm obsessed with because here's the thing: people are so negative on her in the way that they were negative. I think, I mean, I think it is groupthink. I think there's a lot of misogyny and a lot of racism rolled into the way she's covered. I also think she's the vice president, right? So already this is a job that is like an unjob, right? Like what does the vice president do, right? I mean, what is the vice president? She does do? what the president asks her. Right. To do. I mean, what did Dick Cheney breaks ties in the Senate? You know? Right. I mean, yeah. what what did Dick Cheney do? He was president, but otherwise, everyone well, he else in the country. Yeah. <laughs> right. But everyone else, like I don't know what it. I mean, you know what it. I mean, that's the big question: is like, what does the vice president do? And then why are you mad at her? I mean, that's the other thing. Like, you'll talk to people, and they'll be like. Even people who are seem like very clear about many things. I'll be like, why are you mad at her? What didn't she do that you don't like? And they can't. And like, for example, and look, I'm not again, the vice president's a very, you know, there's a reason that there was a television show made about this. Right. Because it's a very nobody really knows what they're supposed to do. And and maybe that's not the best defense. But I'm just like, that's my question. And like, for example, a good example is so one of the things she has to do is this unsolvable problem, right? Immigration. The president of Mexico loves her. He loves her, right? He has she has this amazing relationship with the president of Mexico. Isn't that really her job there, right? I mean, to have a good relationship with the president of Mexico because Mexico is our southern border. I mean, so I just that's kind of my feeling is like, well, Molly, the job is not to have be friends with the president of Mexico. It's to develop it's a to policy deport, that's going to keep people from pouring right. across but the border, which but, they've been doing since the Biden Harris administration took office. Well, again, I would say, Mike, again, I yeah. would say, <laughs> well, that, it's true. The numbers have gone way but up. But also there's no since, more COVID, Mike. Well, I know, but I'm just saying that but I that was a huge issue and the numbers speak for themselves. Record numbers pouring across the board. Well, anyway, so I know it's in politic to say that it doesn't fit in with the well, Molly I mean, John I mean, fast, no, you know, in my, uh, group well, think, but in it's my true. mind that yeah. uh, that. For me, with immigration, obviously, there needs to be a solution. But, you know, as we live in this, you know, where the, we have a tight, la you have a tight labor market, you're not allowed to complain about immigration, right? Like, if we didn't have such a tight labor market, you could say, you know, but I mean, there is, if you don't have people to work the jobs and you don't want immigrants, who are going to work the jobs? Also, Mike, you know, for for the yeah. record, immigration yeah. is not driven by the name of the president of the United States. It's no, driven by, by forces that are very significantly higher than that. Let me ask you another question, yeah. <laughs> Molly. <laughs> another one of your uh, guests is uh, widely touted as uh, kind of a model for the future of, of Democrats, and that's John Fetterman. So what do you what do you make of that? Is he the way uh, is he the sort of candidate Democrats should be running from here on out tall? So I mean, I I feel like Fetterman, I mean, there, so there are a couple of like new, these new stars in the Democratic Party. I would say Fetterman has 
very serious. You know, he is a person who spent a lot of time working on Pennsylvania, right? He lived in this town called Brannock that no one had ever heard of. He bought a car dealership. He moved into it. His wife started a free store. You know, they're very like ensconced in Pennsylvania. I think I actually interviewed him before the stroke. I interviewed him after the stroke. I think that he is, you know, making, you know, he's doing an amazing, he's he's in the process of recovering. I've seen every time I see him, he seems better and better. When I did the interview, we did closed caption and he seemed really, I would say he, you know, if he can read the captions, he's much, much better, but he certainly gets stuck on a word or two. Mostly, I didn't find that with the first, like, First question, but at the end, I found him good. He got stuck. What did you think of the media's coverage uh, of his uh, stroke and then the debate? And how does that fit into your theory about? That was amazing because, I mean, everyone in the media was like, he looks really rough. I didn't actually, I managed to not watch that debate because I was doing something that night. And so I didn't see it, but I saw, actually what I saw was that crazy, I mean, The thing that was so amazing about, I mean, I think Fetterman is an amazing candidate and he had real Pennsylvania bona fides, right? He had been the lieutenant governor. He had a real relationship with the state versus the guy who parachutes in who had been selling the flat tummy tea. I mean, it wasn't, there was like a big, there were a lot of big differences between these candidates. But what I was so impressed with was Oz, who was a good friend of my father-in-law and operated, saved my father-in-law's life. I mean, you know, a lot of New York people know Oz. He lived in he lives in New Jersey. But the the humor of Fetterman is really fun. But I would say that with Oz, he just was so bad at like relating to people. So, you know, when he had that comment about abortion where he said it needs to be between a woman, her doctor and our local affected uh, local elected officials, I was like, what? You know, like you need your dog catcher to make sure that you can have an abortion. <laughs> you need your first selectman in there. I mean, you know, he just was bad at this. I mean, that's the, the I mean, what I think we, we I think what needs to be parsed at some later date is like these Trumpy candidates were also abjectly awful. But, you know, the the media also came away from that debate concluding that it was a disaster for Fetterman right. and that Oz won the debate. And in point of fact, it's almost at exactly that moment when the polls begin changing and Fetterman right. begins improving. So what, what, what did the media just miss about that debate? And there was, by the way, there was more metadata that that showed that that was the moment her, his negatives stopped. Like people saw Fetterman as a human man and they liked it and they related to it. I... I don't know. There was a lot of like, I almost wonder how much because I want to like bring it to the Herschel Walker debate, right? Herschel Walker, every, you know, he had a debate where the media decided that he did well. Remember that? Because his team had so, you know, primed the pump for it and said, you know, he can't really, you know, do full sentences. I don't think we needed his team to lower the bar for Herschel Walker. All you had to do was listen to him speak. But people said that they thought it was a huge success. I mean, so clearly... Because he was somewhat more coherent than the clips that we've all seen on social media. But that's also a function of media narratives, Right. right? I mean, so we all, you know, everyone loves a comeback, you know, the comeback kid. And to some extent, he... The bar was so lowered, uh, he did get over it. So, 
Yeah, no, I know. But it's it's an interest. I mean, if you think about those two events, which have the many of the similar same issues and they people came away with totally different takes. And ultimately, Herschel Walker, I mean, again, they're going to go to a runoff. So who the fuck knows? Excuse my French. So uh, just to um, wrap up here, for all the Democratic celebrations, it it, yeah. uh, it is clear the Republicans, it seems pretty clear the Republicans are going to take control of the House. Oh, yeah. They will have subpoena power. They will control committees. They will conduct investigations. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, we're all eagerly waiting for them. So when we get to the Hunter Biden investigations or the origins of COVID investigations, or the other things they're going to dig into and publicize. Is that good for you uh, and your podcast and social media influence? Are you looking forward to this? Or from the perspective as a citizen, are you dismayed? I mean, I think that none of this is good for any of us. And in fact, I know it's not good because like, so we'll all talk about, there'll be a lot, you know, there was a lot of talk of how Trump was good for media, right? It's sold lots of ads it you know got lots of page views it's true you tell me of all your friends is anyone not depressed today because all my friends who are media reporters who are even straight news on the opinion side all of us it has also caused what like some of us in the industry call news avoidance right Um, and that is not good for us (laughs) right and i'm just telling you there's not a single person i know who is a who is in the in the media who's not just just so distraught about the idea of spending another two fucking years covering this guy i'm sorry excuse my curse but so i mean i don't think any of us want to see it and especially i mean For me personally, as someone who's 25 years sober, to have them drag up Hunter Biden, who doesn't even who's a painter in California about his laptop when he is, I mean, is just it's really hard to watch, especially like considering his long history with substance abuse. But I think that they're going to I think it's going to be an insane House Republican caucus. I think McCarthy is going to be you know, the slave of Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think she's going to be able to do whatever she wants. I think that it's going to be, and it's such a narrow majority. I think it's going to be really tough. I mean, the only good thing is to watch is I think it will be really fun to watch them fight with each other. Well, uh, Molly, you've completely undercut the farewell I was going to give you, which was to tout the line in the New York Times profile of you, which says that one of the things you do is help anxious liberals cope with a chaotic moment. I think you've just succeeded in uh, depressing all our liberal <laughs> listeners with what's um, we'll be facing with the Republican House. What I would say, I mean, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, is that the American people are like a lot better and you know not and they're not as you know they they didn't buy any of this bad stuff you know you saw republicans spent 50 million dollars targeting trans people right i mean like they didn't buy it so i do feel like we should be happy that voters are not you know like this they really want democracy i mean i feel like this is an amazing moment in american all life right. way to bring it around to an upbeat note all right on that you know more upbeat note i want to thank you for joining us what's the name of your podcast fast, fast politics. politics okay oh, very folks, good skullduggery listeners check out fast politics and molly thanks and we will hope to have you back 
Thanks for having me.